welcome everybody. Uh, you are listening to Meet the Founders with Andrew Bott, and uh, I'm Andrew Bott. <laughs> so uh, thanks for tuning in. Uh, this podcast is uh, where we interview successful entrepreneurs and startup teams who've gone through uh, some of the things that you uh, are going through or looking to go through. Um, so they can reflect on their learning experiences and kind of help you in uh, your process. So if you work for a growing company or you're looking to start your own company or your own team, uh, the idea of uh, these chats is to you know, get these insights from, uh, from folks who've already been through it. And uh, you know, hopefully, you know, as we grow, uh, you can also write in some of the questions that you have, and uh, we can ask those on you know the next follow-up interviews. So uh, my name is Andrew Bott. Uh, I'm the founder of Hired Events. Uh, we do events for startups and fast-growing companies, and uh, basically we help companies hire software developers, and we also do free events around the world to help bring the startup community closer together. Um, so startups are my passion and you know I just love uh, entrepreneurs and their mentality uh, because they're you know going after things that don't exist yet <laughs> and just exist in their own mind. Um, and I just love hearing you know about their stories and, and their key takeaways. Uh, so you can find more details about me on uh, hiredevents.com or just click the link below. It's uh, posted in the show notes. So uh, for these first uh, couple interviews, uh, please bear with us. Uh, we know there are going to be some some quality issues uh, for the first couple recordings as we you know upgrade our equipment and get it all working correctly. Um, you know this first interview uh, was with uh, it's going to subpar equipment. So uh, but it's got great content. And it's definitely worth listening to. So uh, I'd like to introduce uh, the first chat that we have happening on this first podcast is Jeff Lynn. Uh, Jeff Lynn is the executive chairman and co-founder of Cedars. And uh, Cedars is one of the pioneers of equity crowdfunding. So I know that everybody is familiar with crowdfunding now, but when uh, Jeff was starting this idea, it didn't exist yet. And uh, he created Cedars as part of a business project while attending an MBA program at the universities of the University of Oxford. And he spent three years getting the idea approved by European regulators because at the time it wasn't legal <laughs> for him to make this happen. And uh, after getting approval in uh, 2012, Cedars received a first round of a million pounds and now has over 48 million pounds in funding uh, from investors. It's now considered one of the leading online platforms for investing in startup equity in Europe. And it was, uh, you know, the, the leader and uh, the company that drove crowdfunding and uh, obviously, which is now, you know, a big boom around the world. Um, so some of his experiences that we get to hear about uh, uh, you know, I always like to, you know, give a brief summary about what happens in the chat for folks who are rushed and just have a chance to listen to these first, you know, five minutes. 
Um, so as a rundown of the things that we talk about, um, you know, at the time there was no such thing as peer-to-peer equity. Um, so Jeff, you know, talks about some of the resistance that he faced um, from getting, you know, getting the initial investment. Um, obviously, the biggest hurdle was regulatory approval, um, but uh, the investors gave serious pushback. Basically, they, they didn't believe that the idea was viable. And he talks about the specific objections that they had, uh, how he overcame that. Uh, and, um, you know, for, for anyone who's seeking investment right now and, and listening to this, um, I think his advice on the type of investors to, to reach out to um, will be really helpful for you. Um, but basically, you know, the biggest advice he gives is to seek someone who's slightly outside of the industry uh, that you're in. So someone who gets what you're talking about, but doesn't have such a strong bias against, you know, you know your idea that it'll challenge their constructs of, constructs of the world with uh, this, this new idea that you have. Um, so uh, the mindsets and the strategies that helped him uh, the most uh, were, were stubbornness and ignorance, <laughs> which, uh, you know, I found pretty funny. Um, you know, it's not the kind of ignorance of, of not knowing anything, but... Uh, the kind of ignorance where you have uh, schlepped schlep blindness. Basically, you know, entrepreneurs who are very successful in making big changes and moving the world forward are ones who don't admit to themselves or, or just don't know how big of a challenge this idea will be when they first start. And, uh, you know, Jeff went through some of that when he was making this idea happen at the beginning. You know, if he had known it was going to take three years at the time he, uh, before he even got his you know, got this off the ground, he might not have, you know, gone after this idea. So sometimes being blind to things can actually make a big difference. Um, And after talking about his funding process, we talk about the risk of setting too many milestones and too many targets too early for early stage companies and how that can really damage growth. And uh, then we talk about uh, the kind of folks that you should hire for your first few hires. So uh, without further ado, uh, let's jump right into this interview with uh, Jeff Lynn, and uh, I hope you enjoy it. Thanks so much. The only thing I could find on on LinkedIn about your background was you know Cedars yeah. and working as an associate lawyer. Mm-hmm. Uh, is that your whole experience? Yeah. And you, you kind of jumped right into the right decision then. Well, sort of. Yeah. <laughs> that's a cool. That's a cool thing. Um, with an MBA in between. So I yeah. Okay. So I was um, yeah. I was, I was a corporate lawyer. I mean, I was you know very conventional training, undergrad in the states, law school in the states, did a law master's here at Oxford. Um, out of interest, and then mm-hmm. started practice in New York. Had a chance to come over to my firm's London office, and you know was 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 doing all that. But I, I never, I always had, I you know, I always had this kind of inkling that that this wasn't what I wanted to do for my whole career. And I think, in particular, the thing that really struck me was that you know I was working, I was mostly an MA lawyer, and I was working on really big deals, a lot of companies, you know, massive companies, taking mm-hmm. over massive companies. And you, know, you get paid well for it, but I've just seen value destroyed all along the way. Basically, I've seen companies that were uh, just struggling to find ways to grow, taking over other companies that were struggling to find ways to grow, <laughs> you know, making a bunch of people redundant, uh-huh. and sort of hoping to maybe boost bottom line profitability for a few years, but not, you know, there's nothing fundamental about sort of building something there. Mm-hmm. Whereas, 
you know, I, I joke that one of the things that happens when you're a young lawyer is, is young corporate lawyers, your friends who are doing startups, start pestering you for free legal advice. And, sure. I, you know, I started... That's what to you? Yeah, and I started, so I just started getting peripherally involved with a few friends. I mean, they basically corporation documents, basic contracts, but just stuff that, that would, but I was suddenly became, you know, sort of exposed to this world of, of startups and growth ventures and thinking like, oh, yeah, these are two people in a garage with absolutely nothing going Seemed on. more fun. Mm-hmm. Seemed a lot more fun. <laughs> and it seemed to be a place where value could really be created. I mean, mm-hmm. I think one of, one of the running themes in my, I think about me through the years is that I'm... Uh, more than some tech entrepreneurs, I think, more than many, I'm an unabashed capitalist. Like, I actually believe in making money, and, and I believe that it's good for society when, you know, money finds its most productive uses. And I think that, you know, I, I, I do think money is an important part of the picture, but I think it's not about just spinning money around in some synthetic way. It's about mm-hmm. how do you how do you build things of real value? Because mm-hmm. if you can build things of real value, there's gonna be enough money to go around for everybody. And so part of me thought, now look, this is these people are actually creating real things. And this is a space where, you know, you're gonna look back on your career, you know, back on your life, and you may have loads of failures, but you'll you know you will hopefully be able to say, I built that, I did that. Mm-hmm. And if, if the thing you built was a value, you probably got to keep some of that value and you probably made a very nice life for yourself. And sure. you know, those two together, you know, said, yeah, this is, you know, we're going, I'm lucky enough. Rather than shuffling money. Rather than shuffling money from synthetic stuff and all the, you know, just sort of nonsense, you know, city stuff that you often, often see. And so, yeah, so I just, you know, I was approaching 30 then and, and I, I just said, look, if I'm lucky enough, have the health and everything to, to have another you know career of 35, 40 years, mm-hmm. where do I want to spend it? What do I want to be doing? I said, this looks better. So I, I decided, I, I had no idea how to get into it. I had no idea what I was doing, but I just sort of decided to uh, go off into an MBA. Uh, sort of oh, interesting. It. Yeah, yeah. I, I thought that I needed, there was a lot that I needed to learn about business from kind of an operational side. You know, as a deal lawyer, I picked up a lot about finance and transactions and, and you know and you know, corporate matters and, and you know that was that I probably could have winged the rest of but I didn't know anything about marketing, I didn't know anything about strategy. Mm-hmm. And even though they still aren't my strong suits, I figured that I needed the jo- I needed to understand some of the jargon, some of the framework, some of the basics of it. Um, and then I also thought it would be a good way to spend a year and kind of figure out where I might land. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really had no idea. And I remember saying before I went to business school, I said, like, look, yeah, in an ideal world, you know, I'll meet a co-founder and we'll start working on a business. I said, but I'm, you know, that's unlikely. And then, you know, maybe I'll wind up taking a junior job in BC or something like that for mm-hmm. a bit and see where I land. So I really didn't know what the MBA would produce. Got lucky though, met my co-founder, and we started working in the on MBA Cedars. program. In the MBA program. Oh, Cedars, wow. Cedars actually started as a as a as a um, business school project. We we uh, so we were up at up at Oxford, and they have a. Uh, a requirement that everybody, regardless of whether you're interested in entrepreneurship, everybody has to get together and do a business plan for credit for you know some business. So we got together in a group and started working on this. It was my co-founder's idea, and I loved it. And you know we started working on it. one day, sort of said, "Hey, you know what? This thing works, doesn't it? Should, should we actually go off and do it?" And that was where it came from. You know, we stumbled on something that we quite liked, and you know, it's, you know good, good timing. It was good timing. <laughs> um, so the fir- the first year or the first few months um i think what what really interests me is 
um, at a time when equity crowdfunding was was, was new. Yeah. Um, how did you? What, what were the challenges? First of all, what, what were the challenges yeah. that, that you encountered doing something so different, so new? So, so yeah. I mean, it, it was yeah. Equity crowdfunding was not a thing. Crowdfunding wasn't really a thing. I mean, I mean, yeah, you know, yes, started. Kickstarter and Indiegogo had, had sort of launched, but but they. A, we didn't we didn't really look at them particularly closely or really think about them in the same vein because you know although they would go on to get a lot of brand recognition, to us investment versus donations like purchase are just such different yeah. concepts. We were looking actually a lot more at peer to peer lending um, okay. and you know the early days of that Zopa here and Kiva internationally and all and that actually we thought was the best analogy we could come up with which was sure. see what these guys are doing with debt we want to do that with equity and that that resonated to a degree but for the most part we were just you know we we were phrasing in much broader terms which was this was one more of the massive wave of the preceding 15 years of taking traditional offline reasonably inefficient business models and trying to find a way to bring them online and to get you know take advantage of all of the you know all of the scalability and efficiencies that come with digital technology and so you know depending on who we were telling the story to and who we were, who we were talking to sometimes we'd be very specific and say See this initial traction for peer lending. We're trying to do the same in equity, you know. The, but you know, often we would say it much more broadly is to say, look, you know, venture capital, early stage investment, has not evolved in sixty years. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the, there has been, and it's remarkable, of course, because these are people who invest in really innovative business models. But their models haven't evolved, haven't evolved at all. And here are all the problems with it. And we were focused particularly at the kind of angel level at the time. Expanding more into kind of VC and later stage territory came a bit later, but we said, you know, seed capital, and then early stage capital, this is just a clusterfuck of a system, and here are all the problems with it, and here's how we can solve it from a from an online perspective. And, and, and that was kind of what we went out with, and, you know, we got a hell of a lot of pushback. Um, you did? Yeah, a massive amounts. I mean, you know, the vast majority of people I think we talked doing that for six months or a year basically told us we were nuts. Right. Um, everyone had slightly different reasons for why we were nuts, which was interesting. It wasn't one fundamental thing. Some people thought that we'd never get regulatory approval. Um, so that was for us one of the really big sort of innovations and successes in early days was if you looked at it on the face of it, you know, we had to go to the regulator and ask them to give us permission to let ordinary man on the street type investors mm -hmm. invest in one of the highest risk asset classes out there right in the wake of the financial crisis. Like right. you could easily concoct a story or you could, probably the intuitive story is that ain't gonna happen. Yep. We understood at a much deeper level based on the way that regulations worked and based on the processes that we were gonna put in and what regulators were looking for and from my legal background. I mean, we thought we had a very strong chance at persuading the regulator that we could do it and we did and you know, we, we, we we succeeded, but it was a close run thing, and I think a lot of people doubted that we would make that work. That was one. So that was that was one bit. You know, that, that is pretty amazing. Sorry to interrupt, but yeah. it, it is pretty, um, you know, amazing that you did get that approval. <laughs> you know, it was there was a mix of you know there, there there were a mix of tactics. You know, one was, and I think the fundamentally winning tactic was just. And still is, I think, the way we try to approach our business today, one of kind of ruthless transparency. You know, we 
we went in and just you know made absolutely clear to the regulator about how we were going to operate, how we we're going to educate people. You know, one of the, like you know, this may, may almost sound—I mean, certainly silly to our mentality—but like one of the things they were really fixated on was the prospect of outbound telephone calls. Like, was there any, you know, the, the old boiler room thing, was there any possibility that we were gonna start dialing people up and saying, hey, I got a great, great, I get a great investment for you. Yeah. And as we finally got them convinced, like, no, 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 like that's, they, there's no chance that we do that. You know, here's how it works and, and everything. You know, you, 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 they eventually sort of came around and understood it. Interesting. Um, you know, and we, we had to use, there were times when we had to involve some lawyers and, you know, be a little bit tougher in terms of the approach as well, particularly at the end of the process. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, I think we, we did navigate that successfully. And I think, fun, you know, I think, to, to be honest, you know, that's probably one of my prouder kind of achievements and all of Well, yeah, because without that, nothing would have happened. Exactly. <laughs> Um, so you got those kinds of challenges, which were fair and which were completely, you know. But as I, I think we were able to, to overcome them, yeah. The challenges that maybe were a little more frustrating were the just the this isn't the way it's done kind of thing. You know, you got a lot of a lot of people doubting the idea that anyone would part with money to an invest, you know, in an investment without human interaction with the team. Um, and you know our response kept being to say, look, first of all, you know if you are in this group of investors that we identified that we thought would want to invest a hundred pounds or five hundred thousand pounds into deals, they will recognize that they have no way of doing that and interacting with you. And the team can, is not going to spend hours and hours with every five hundred pound investor. So it's not a choice between do I do it the old way or do I do it the new way. It's a, if I want to invest in the asset class, this is the way to do it. I said, you know, for the bigger guys, for people around 25,000, 50,000 pounds, just because the transaction takes place online, what's to stop you from emailing the team and saying, mm-hmm. hey, I'm thinking of investing in your round, why don't you, you know, come grab a coffee? Right. And that's exactly what happened. A lot of people, I think, struggled to wrap their heads. They saw online as a pure play thing and the notion that there could possibly be this hybrid aspect to it, I think, through people. And then there were other people who, you know, challenge it more from an entrepreneur perspective, which is why would a good entrepreneur want to raise money from the crowd? Like if they if they could raise money from VC, they will. So won't you just get bad businesses? Businesses. That That's an interesting elsewhere. argument. Um, and 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 there's a very interesting. I mean, there's a very clear answer in my mind, which is that you know. If, if you believe VCs very self-serving propaganda that they are gods and that everybody should want them because you know they're not just money, they bring all these mm-hmm. other things, then it makes sense. But any entrepreneur worth his salt knows that that's 99% bullshit. Like mm-hmm. if you can get there is there is value at times in having certain types of VCs and institutions on certain deals. And for all of our companies, as they get bigger, it makes sense for them to have an institutional component. But the reality is a good entrepreneur understands that you go to where the money. You know, if you can get the money at a fair price, you can then hire in the talent and buy the things you need. So you you don't fixate on you know the fact that oh this VC is promising that they'll be able to help you with HR or, or whatever mm-hmm. maybe. And so we said, so long as we can make the experience more attractive, whether that's in terms of faster, more efficient more certain, better pricing, etc. You know, if we can make this a better experience, then why wouldn't, they? why wouldn't they come to us? And so that was kind of challenging. And there were a host of others, but that was the sort of thing that we... Um, Those are really interesting challenges. I mean, I, I mo- mostly just 
it sounds to me kind of like just pushback for the sake of pushback. Yeah. Kind of? Yeah. Um, it, 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 it's interesting how much, how tough it is often to get people, particularly people in a, in a given space, to wrap their head around the change, yeah, you know, um, around change, around innovation, and and I remember, I can, I distinctly remember this that um, my father, who has never really fully understood what we do, but it's been very supportive, um, early on was describing <coughs> us to his barber out in Arizona, mm-hmm. and the barber got it, and he was relaying it back to me. The barber got it better than some financial professionals did mm-hmm. because the barber wasn't coming with any preconceived notions. Like sure. The barber was thinking of it in terms of, oh, so I've got a barber shop, so if I want to maybe turn it into a chain, I might need money, so there'd be this platform I could do. And he was sort of thinking right. from first principles and willing, you know, not necessarily that it would go unchallenged, but they were willing to accept it. But if you have a lens, around what this ecosystem looks like or what funding looks like, what the funding ladder looks like, it can be a lot harder to break out of that. I think Especially that's a lens of 30 years of experience. Exactly, exactly. then you build these complicated systems in your mind. And exactly. When something comes along that's totally different, you rebel against it. it, it that's that exactly right. And, and amazing, Interesting. And it's like, you know, I don't want to sort of sidetrack too much on this, but there's a particular individual um, named Lucius Carey, and I'm not, I don't want to get about him, but it's relevant to, to say his name because he 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 was known. He's largely retired now, I think. But ten years ago, particularly coming out of Oxford, he was known as one of the most active venture capital VCT investors uh, in, in the country, particularly in the regions. And mm-hmm. and 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 I it was a fascinating thing. I reached out to him for advice and to engage on this because he was hugely respected. And he sent me back a very pleasant but very difficult note, basically saying, "I'd be happy to meet you, but I don't think you'll want to meet me." Here are all the reasons why I think this is an absolutely terrible idea. Interesting. And I was a little stunned by that. And when I looked at his background, his background was fascinating. He had gone to Harvard Business School early 70s. He'd noticed that a thing that was very popular in America were hamburger chains. Not something that really existed in the UK at the time. So he came back and started one of the first hamburger chains in the UK, quite successfully. Uh, made a decent bit of money out mm-hmm. of it, sold it. Then realized that his journey in trying to raise money for that chain had been impossible. It had been a huge pain in the ass, and he had no idea where to get it. I think he'd like, look, taken out an ad in the FT or something like that. Been, been, he said, there's got to be a better way to do fundraising in this country. So he started this thing called the Venture Capital Report, which was a newsletter that for 20 years he sent out with, you know, to a mailing list with new deals looking for money, etc. He'd innovated in the space. He had seen a problem and innovated. Then we came along yeah. with the internet era, and he couldn't see it at all. Like he just That's could really not comprehend the idea. There was something like, I was fascinated. Yeah. You know, you get that. You do get that a lot. Well, maybe if you had brought that idea to him, you know, 20 years before, yeah, when think, he was still innovative. I think that's right. I think I think that's right, and I, I'm sure he's the personality type. Where had, had he been, you know. 20, 30 years younger, and right. had, had that burger chain problem in the age of the internet, right. he probably would have come up with exactly what we came up with. Yeah. He came up with a newsletter using the technologies at the time, great, mm-hmm. but then couldn't further you know, adapt his mind. That's really interesting. Now. Yeah, I, I haven't thought about people's uh, 20 years of you know subjectivity before, in, yeah. in a way, for why they 
thinking the idea is bad. And 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 you know, it's it's, it's, it's what I'm talking about is I'm always very conscious of that because you know I'm now at the point ten years in where you know we see right ideas. Yeah, there might be user. Exactly. <laughs> and, and and look, you know, a lot of a lot of the stuff around blockchain has been a really interesting example of this. I mean, I'm I'm with it enough to understand that, and I don't just reject blockchain out of hand. I mean, there's a lot of key, you know interesting applications. To yeah. It. You know, they, there's a lot that makes a lot of sense, but there's also some really wacky stuff there. Of course. And, you know, I sit there sometimes saying, this looks wacky to me, but wait a minute, am I being that guy who isn't able to see the next thing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's really interesting. Yeah. Uh, it, it can happen easier than we think. Yeah, think. no, absolutely. Um, so, de- dealing with these these challenges, um, and in the early, you know, in the early stages, what 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 mindsets or strategies help you the most when overcoming these roadblocks and just like continuing to get customers and getting funding and getting regulation? You know, I I, I think the short answer is stubbornness. I mean, <laughs> uh, you know it. <clears throat> When we launched in 2012, after three years of going through the regulatory process and raising bits and bobs of money and fighting these challenges, it's been a very long pre-launch period. You know, there were a lot of people who've been supporters of ours all along. Who so were, it was 2009, 2012, four years. That's a long time. Hell of a long time. Yeah. Um, and you know, you keep telling people this thing's coming. It was mostly the regulatory process, you know, and, and the fact that it had to be done linearly. So you had to build the whole thing and then go to regulate. Anyway, it was a long process, and you know, we got to 2012, and one of our friends in Alder came to congratulate us, and I said that, and I still say today that you know, all we've done is gotten to the starting line at that point. Yeah. And if there's any award or any congratulations we deserved at that stage, it was just for being really good at continuing to bang our heads against the wall until wow. the wall came down. So I really didn't. It was a lot of stubbornness, and then the other thing I think was. Um, uh, have you come across? I mean, you know Paul Graham from who founded YC. Um, I know Y Combinator. Okay, Paul so Graham. so Paul Paul founded it and is a really really interesting essayist. He doesn't write that much anymore, but he used to publish about once a month a really thoughtful essay on the space. And mm-hmm. he had this great essay, one of my favorites, called Schlep Blindness. And the whole point of it is that many of the most successful entrepreneurs are successful in part because they are blind to just how much of a schlep they've got in front of them. You know, if they, if somebody told them, if somebody told me in 20, 2009 it's going to be three years of banging your head against the wall, <laughs> who knows if you have the endurance to do it, right? I'd like to, th- I'd like to say I would have, but let's be yeah. realistic. But we didn't know that. We thought it was all going to go fast and be lovely and, you know, and, 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 and we were also slightly willfully ignorant. We just didn't think too much about, you know, the yeah. challenges that would come up. So, I mean, we thought about the practical challenges, but we didn't think about you know, how long it would be an hour. So, you know, I think there was, there was an element of that. We were stubborn and we were a bit ignorant. Um, and those two things probably helped out. Being stubborn and ignorant, <laughs> that's funny. That's not, uh, that's not normal mindset advice <laughs> in normal life. <laughs> no, no, but how else do you do something quite so irrational, right? I mean, yeah, well, it, what's interesting for me about this idea and many other great ideas is that it's, it's really logical and also really irrational at the same time. I mean, it has both. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And even look, you know, one thing I've said often through the years is, it is, there's an irrational, from the entrepreneur's perspective, you know, to be quite so single risk, to devote, you know, years to trying to build something that all statistics would tell you are likely to work against you. You know, it's likely not to work out. Um, 
of course that's there is an irrationality to it. But in a broader context, you know, I mean, and I, I always think this is important to say, um, you know, I have a good education and wasn't going to wind up in the gutter if it didn't work. I would have mm-hmm. been able to get a good job. Yeah, of course. Married, my wife was working. Like, the real downside, I mean, it would have been embarrassing and hugely demoralizing and all of that, but, sure. you know, when you have a bit of a personal safety net around you, it's a little, it's it's a little less irrational, I think. You know, I mean, the guy yeah, might as well go for it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, you hear about less in the tech world. But I mean, you hear about the entrepreneurs ages ago. You know, borrowed their mother's last five hundred dollars to buy a push cart. I don't think I could you do know? that. Like that's a that's a whole. Yeah, whole I don't think I could. My, no. my mom has even offered to invest in my current idea. I I can't do it because. Because it could not work, and I'm okay if it doesn't work. Right, but if but it's her hundred thousand dollars, it really matters to her. I mean, I would just feel terrible. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. And so, um, so yeah, so yeah, so at a fun. I'm just I'm conscious of the fact that on just a fundamental level, you know, there was this wasn't going to, you know, be life ending if it hadn't worked. Mm-hmm. But it is still yeah, it's still a pretty irrational thing, and 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 to do this instead of just. Plugging away as a lawyer and making a good salary or, or whatever else one might have done. Um, yeah, I think you. I think the mentality has to be a slightly irrational mentality. Mm-hmm. And, and what I'm hearing is a undertone is having that safety net as part of the mentality. So in other yeah. words, knowing you're going to be okay, that allowed you to, to kind of go after it for longer I, than. I, I think so. Yeah. No, I think I think that's right. I mean, I think certainly. I mean, probably two elements. There was just a literal element that my wife was working, so we had yeah. income. So you know, we weren't, we you know, we were we were okay month to month. Um, but then I think more broadly, yeah, I, I I think look, there are some people who you know really you know are prepared to live in poverty and do whatever it takes to get there. I don't know. Maybe I would have been. Maybe I wasn't. I, I'm very lucky not to have had to face that choice. Yeah. I certainly wasn't a you know a rich kid who could just dilly about, but. I, I, the fact that I felt I could land on my feet even if this would fail was certainly an important part of it. Mm-hmm. Cool. Uh, the selling the idea to investors, to yes. the first investors, did, did that happen in those three years, or was it after well, you so got the regulation? It was, a, it was a mix. So in the first three years, we we, we raised kind of these bits and bobs of capital. And how did you do that? Like, uh, how did you sell this idea that was crazy to other people? Yeah. Um, that's what I'm curious it about. It was, I mean, a lot of it early on was friends and family uh, who fundamentally were backing us okay. rather than, you know, I mean, they, they got the idea, they understood it, but they were investing relatively small amounts mm-hmm. in, you know, and, and I think just on the basis that they thought Carlos, my co-founder, and I were a good team and we'd figure something out. You know, and, and in many cases, they were not, they were, in almost all cases, they were non-specialists, so they didn't come at this from with all the biases of professional sure. investors and people who you know really had objections to the space for the most part they i think viewed it as an interesting idea high risk but they kind of you know viewed us as 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 credible and mm-hmm. you know were willing to take a little bit of a punt and that was the that was kind of uh, where we managed to get get money from we did though spend a lot of time in those days talking to vcs talking to angels talking to sort of you know much more professional people and got absolutely I mean, it was just wow. totally landed on our face constantly. <laughs> um, and really interestingly, you know, and, and it took me a little while to understand that this was what was happening, but we got lots of meetings I could get to. I mean, that I was like, you know, into a partner at any major VC. Like, it wasn't hard to get meetings. 
But I think that was just because they were interested in what we were doing. They were like, because it was close to their space that they kind of wanted to see what was up, but they weren't gonna write a check for it. Wow. Uh, yeah, and so a lot of wasted breath, a lot of time running around Mayfair and Shoreditch and all. Um, but do you think that was necessary? Uh, I think it was, I think it was. It certainly helped us hone hone the pitch and refine what Of course. Um, the key thing that wound up happening, so two, the, we, so the, you know, we were raising you know, tiny little bits of money and then we got regulatory approval or got advance notice of regulatory approval in March of 2012. And off the back of that, we raised a million pound round to launch with. That was our first real money to actually be able to commercialize the business. And certainly getting the regulatory sign off was key in that. And you know, we, wouldn't, we wouldn't have gotten, you know, raised that money without, the rate, you know, without having that part de-risked. Um, but the big thing for us, I don't know how terribly applicable this is, but just our story was mm-hmm. that we discovered that you know, we're a fintech, and in theory, that could attract a wide range of different types of investors. But actually, what we understood was tech investors, people who are fundamentally tech investors, have absolutely no interest in us. People who are fundamentally financial services guys loved us. Um, because if you were a VC and if you were from the tech investment world and if you, you spent your days thinking about innovation rather than about financing models, we just, you know, we clashed with truths that you held close. But all the financial services guys, a lot of our early investors, angels and some, some you know, a lot of that million pound round was made up of angels, bankers, mm-hmm. you know, people like that. And, um, a lot of them were all sitting in banks being like, I see a lot of fucked up things in the city. I think there's room for lots of new innovation. I've got no bias as to how startups used to get funded. You've got an interesting model, I want to back that. And so, you know, and I really, ever since we've focused most of our fundraising efforts on people who really understood financial services and who came at this from a more financial services lens rather than a tech lens. And that was a lesson that took a few years to learn. That's, that's interesting, especially after our the first questions where we talked about people having kind of fixed, mm-hmm. fixed ideas if they're in financial services. So it's kind of just finding the sweet spot. Yeah, it's been there, but hasn't been there too long. Too long. And, and I think <laughs> to be to be very specific, the people who tended to have the really fixed ideas were the ones who were in the kind of venture capital, private equity side of the financing world. Because if you look at you look at the profile of many partners of, of venture firms, and they're not finance guys. And they probably shouldn't be. I mean they're often entrepreneurs and people from other types of backgrounds. Mm-hmm. And they sort of learn the ropes of how VC works, but they're they're there to look at, you know, what's the next interesting startup. And they don't necessarily think about finance as a concept as much. Whereas you get guys, you know, I mean, a lot of guys that, that missed in us were like real estate derivative sales guys, like like totally, totally different parts of the market. So they had no bias about how this particular okay. would work, but they were able to wrap their heads around the idea that, oh, okay. Now, if we've been selling them a real estate derivative sales platform, they maybe they, flat. yeah, exactly. But, okay. So yeah. I think there was something, there was something about the fact that they, they understood finance, but we weren't encroaching on you know, their vertical or their way of thinking about things. Okay, but not too close to it. Yeah. Oh, so setting, set, setting the milestones, I think, uh, is really interesting to me, you know, after, uh, or as you're getting that, that first investment and, and soon after getting that first investment, for, for something that's so different yeah. new, how do you set milestones and move them or do you <laughs> not have them at all? Like, how does that, how does that work? 
you know because it's easy when you have an established business absolutely now this is what we should get but i have been very 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 skeptical of milestones and targets for very early stage businesses and i've gotten into discussions through the years with the board about it and you know we're now at a point where forecasting can be done in a somewhat scientific way it has a lot of value but early on you know the board would push me to set targets and i would often say no i'd say look i well we need to you know we raise some money we need to do as much as we can as effectively as we can with this money as far as we can i don't know exactly what that's going to look like i don't know whether that's going to be a lot of success here a lot of success there or this that but we're going to be thoughtful about how we spend every pound and we're going to do all that we can to make sure that by the next time we go to market for, for money we are able to show, tell a story about significant progress. Mm -hmm. um, and I think when you're particularly when you're experimenting and finding product market fit and even beyond that and you're trying to sort of figure out how to scale, I think that's really important because if you set targets, then everybody just chases those targets. And if right. you know if you if we say we want to get a hundred you know, deals done this year, but we're assuming that the deals are going to be tiny, you know, 50,000 deals. And all of a sudden, deal comes, a million pound deal comes along, and there's an opportunity to do that, but it's going to take some additional work. So only one deal is going to make us a bunch of money. You know, you're going to have a team that's like, oh, well, that doesn't really contribute to our volume so much, so let's, let's go after, right. you know, let's go after more than 50,000. So it's, you know, I think you have to have a level of flexibility early on. And a lot of, you know, corporate managers hate that. They really, 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 yep. you know, really don't know how to work with not having clear targets, but I think up to a certain point, basically up to about our Series A, that was how we did things. And you try, you really tried not to say. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Okay. You know, we would say ranges. We would talk about top kinds of growth rates we were hoping to hit, but we tried as hard as we could not to make that make those kinds of milestones or targets any more concrete than they really had to be. Just because we needed the flexibility to learn and chase opportunities. And that makes sense. See where they got to. And it, honestly, it makes sense for any business, not just business that's on the cutting edge. I mean, it makes for any startup. I think you know. I think if you're just if you're finding your place and you're doing something somewhat innovative, you know, it's important. And I think look, one of the and, and, and I've, I mean, I've thought a lot about this through the years. I've seen one of the values of targets is when you get to a size when we're now ninety people and. It decides where not everybody can be bought into or understand every moment of the, every bit of the strategy mm -hmm. in every moment. So, you know, targets act as proxies and act as simplifiers. But you know, in those days we were 10, 15, 20 people. Yep. We'd sit around in the office and chat. And you know, we'd talk, you know, people knew what was on my mind, people knew what we were chasing at mm -hmm. any given point, and you know, we were able to I think have that kind of flexibility. And so part of it is just that and that's you know that's why one of the reasons I love startups they're agile they're small enough that they don't necessarily need as much of these fixed you know as much of the fixed systems and are more able to just respond to what happens yeah it, it, I think that's a really uh, great lead into a problem that I'm having right now which is those first few few hires yeah um, you know I thought that I had chosen the right person and it turned out so I'm really curious what uh, the first you know the first ten hires what you're Biggest advice is for that, you know, folks who can, who like being in something so amorphous. Yeah. Um, you know, because I, 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 I have no answer to that right now. <laughs> I know, like, when I meet someone, I'm like, that's an entrepreneur. That's like, I, like right. I feel, yeah, like, we're on the same page. Yeah. I just don't know how to, how to hire Higher. them, because usually those people are doing their own thing. So yeah. So I have to have someone who wants to be part of your vision, but at the same time, is entrepreneurial enough, they can handle that. <laughs> I think, yeah, it's a really, really good question. And as I look at, you know, 
a number of our, our first successful hires, you know, a disproportionate number based on the nature of what we needed and what we were doing were, were lawyers or, or, mm. or, or ex-lawyers like me. Um, and, and, and that made slightly easy hunting ground in the sense that you, know, you had a lot of young lawyers out there you know, at any given time who were in their firms, who were frustrated, who really wanted to be doing something more innovative, who were bored. But for one reason or another, you know, they just haven't come across the idea that they that they want quite yet, or mm -hmm. haven't really taken the plunge to do it on their own. And so, to, you know, we're a, we're able to can you know to go to them and give them the opportunity to be part of something very entrepreneurial and get in right. you know, almost at the ground floor. I think was very compelling. So we had a few a few of our key early hires uh, were that profile. I think more you know more broadly. I think, you know, I think we looked for people who were were highly intelligent. We always prioritized sort of intelligence over skill in the sense that, you know, we wanted people who were going to be able to adapt and learn with the business, even if they weren't necessarily the ones with the most experience doing the particular task that we needed done at any mm -hmm. point. Um, so our, our legal head, who's now our COO, who is just absolutely outstanding, she was two years post-qualified as a lawyer. She was really young. And when we were needed, what we initially needed was essentially general counsel. Um, there were people much more experienced who applied than her, but just had a feeling that she really bright and really hungry and really wanted to learn and adapt and grow. And, what, and she was also one of these people who was frustra frustrated in a big law environment and wanted the flexibility. So all those things kind of came together and we said, yeah, this is, this is the right Mm -hmm. So certainly that that you know that that sort of generalized intelligence, hunger, you know, young, you know, you can't discriminate based on age, but you know, young always helps because it's people who are often still more willing to roll up their sleeves and get into it and you know, have mortgages and kids and things and are more willing to work for equity and you know, and right. anyway, so that well, that always helps. Um, and then you know, there's an element of trial and error to it, and you know, you take some people and fire well, you know, as well yeah, fire well. yeah, and it's hard. You don't want to. We were lucky. We really didn't. Our first sort of ten hires or so, I, you know, everyone stayed with us for at least a, a decent bit of time. Mm. Uh, but you know, as time went by, we started making some mistakes and uh, uh, made plenty. Uh, so no science to it. But yeah, big believer in generalized intelligence. Big believer in hunger. Williams for up sleeves. If they're coming from an if they're coming from an environment where they are frustrated by button down corporate life, that helps. Interesting. Okay, so so they have a few years experience. Yeah, and I'm and I am you know it's not necessarily true for everybody. Like you know programmers are a different different breed, but um, I think for the business side, law, marketing, you know sales, commercial, a little bit of experience in a. A bigger operation helps a lot. It teaches a lot of professionalism. You know, the organizations tend to be better at you know just drilling into people the importance of proofreading. You know, so you know importance of returning phone calls quickly. Like I mean, like you know silly stuff. But that's often when you're 21 and you're joining a you don't know that corporate you don't know and it gets drilled yeah. into you. So that's and, and it's hard in a startup to do. You know, because you're focusing on a million different exactly. problems coming up. You can't exactly. be teaching someone to make phone calls. Exactly. Yeah, I get exactly. that. And so it doesn't hurt one bit to have that kind of experience um, uh, behind you, I think. Um, you know, but you don't want people who've been so long they've gone native. So there is there is a profile of people who've done, you know, one or two corporate-y type jobs are, 
you know, 25, 26, 27, still fresh and young and hungry and willing to do what it takes to build, but also had just enough seasoning and also enough frustration with the uh, with the. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, I don't want to take um, your your whole day. No, no, no. I, mean, I just want to keep an eye. So I probably yeah. get about another ten minutes. Okay, amazing. Um, just just give me the word. And yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so I was really curious about this. Uh, this is jumping years yeah, ahead. Yeah, yeah. Um, about about this secondary market. Yeah. Thing and and how. Because it's a, I think it's a really cool idea showing that just because you had a successful idea, you're not just staying with that and not yeah. changing it. Because for me, I think it's a really cool direction and a yeah. really important direction. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So, I mean, so, so no, it's a really good set of questions. Um, so, yeah, I mean, look, I think that we probably always took as given that if you could make a secondary market work, it would be a good thing. And, mm. and, and I think, you know, there is, you know, locked in with the sort of 1950s, this is how venture capital is done. There is, or was, you know, a mentality among some that, you know, everyone, every investor should be with every business until exit, that right. secondary is somehow a bad thing. Bullshit. You know, I mean, and, and I think we, 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 we recognize that early on, and I think now, mm. now most of the VC world is getting to. Yeah, there are any number of reasons why, as an investor, you might want to leave at a particular point in the company's growth or join at a particular point in the company's growth. And especially, you know, as companies go public later, more private capital becomes right. available. Yeah. You know, why does investing in this space have to mean that you're in it for 15 years before you see your turn? So, yeah, and, and you know, it's not bad. I mean, I, I can't tell you, I mean, that, you know, we have that from those friends and family and all invest in us in 2010, 2011, every so often. I'll get this incredibly sheepish call that will dance around. Like, I need some money. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and, and yeah. they'll be desperately worried about offending me by telling me that they yeah. don't sell down part of their holding. And my answer was great, fantastic. Look, I'm glad we were able to get a good return for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I think a lot of people still, you know, there is that sort of stigma. We, of we, course. You know, so, so we said, forget that, that's fine. No, this nothing would say wrong. But mechanically, it's super hard to do. One of the things, mm -hmm. and, and, and not, not just mechanically, but maintaining liquidity, particularly on the buy side, when you don't have any of the information flows out there, is, is, has bedeviled people who tried to do secondary markets in private companies for years. And the number of examples we had of unsuccessful private company secondary markets through the years, just every, every couple of years, somebody starts one and it goes the exact same direction. And so we were very, you know, it's a very hard thing to do. Mm -hmm. um, and so we, you know, people are still in the economy for this. I mean, I'm, there are, we will find somewhere on record pronouncements by me that it wasn't something we ever really planned to do. Because I just didn't see how we could make it work. Um, but then two things came together. Two things happened. One was uh, we have... Um, for every funded business, we have what we call our post-investment page, which includes a discussion forum, and all the investors in that business mm -hmm. can use that to either discuss with each other things or discuss things with the company. And you know, we always thought that was fundamentally about company updates or providing support and narrative things. And but what we found was people were actually starting to use that discussion forum to create their own market. People were starting to say, "Hey, really? I'd like to sell." And my friend, "Oh, I'd like to buy some more of those." So you and saw that happen. So the action was actually happening. But it was a shitty product in the sense that, you know, you're trying to do it on literally a bulletin board. Um, right. And so part of us said, well, you know what? If people are doing this anyway, we have no idea what the scale of this thing is going to be. I still wasn't persuaded, particularly, that um, 
we could overcome the fundamental problems. But if there's at least a little bit of demand, let's build a product around it and see what happens. So that was one part of the driver. The other part of the driver, quite frankly, is we were going into a fundraising round and I wanted a big strategic analysis ahead of it. I yeah. wanted something to really be able to hang our hat on. And it's all, you know, there's nothing quite like being able to announce that you're doing something or have launched something, but it's before you have to prove the numbers for it, right? Like, so to be able to time it in, in a way is be like, yeah, we're about to raise money. Hey, look at what we're launching. So yeah. there was a little bit of that. And so the timing seemed to work well, but we, we, we did go about this. I mean, again, I mean, I think you know, much of what I, much of the way I've approached business through the years would be a corporate manager's nightmare because, you know, we went into it with no targets, with no expectations, and actually, you know, without a whole lot of hype, you know, and, and I think in our launch blog post, we basically said, we're going to see how this thing works, you know, and if it, if it looks like it's popular, we'll invest in it and keep building it. If not, you know, we'll maintain it and let, you know, let people use it for what they want to use it for. So we were well, very... that's a great thing because then if it goes well, you know, then it's a big, cool thing. If exactly. It doesn't go well, then it can't Exactly. Kind of, and I think... Overhyping things. And, and one of the, and I think one of the core observations that we've come up with is, is that all these secondary markets through the years that have failed, part of the problem was that was their whole business. They had to make that work. That, they had um, to right. make the secondary bit work. And so... The very slow, and it has been a gradual growth. I mean, it's been consistently growing. We're seeing a lot of activity, but that kind of gradual growth, if that's your whole model, it's tough to run a business that way. For us, it's a side product. You know, our primary market is our is our core business. And right. so we have we can have a little bit of the patience to let the secondary market grow a bit organically, you know, and, and, and not freak out. And has it? It's, it has, yeah. And it's it's actually Grown a lot faster than we expected, and we are, and as a consequence, we have started investing more and more in it, which in turn it seems like a significant killer idea. Yeah, no, and, and and it's it has worked really, really well so far. I think we, I think it has been it has been one of our big successes. But look, I'm the first to say, you know, one of our big successful products, which you know, although I will take credit for ultimately pushing the button to instigate. Um, was one of the things that I said that I never envisioned us being able sure. to do, you know. But then you saw people doing it and, yeah. you, know, and yeah. you saw the need. Exactly. exactly. You didn't block yourself off from... No, and, and preserving that optionality, I think, is, is always key. And again, it's why you, you know, why there's value. Mm -hmm. And look, we have, Lord knows, I mean, you know, you don't, we don't talk about it, think about it as much, all the sort of projects we started working on and didn't go anywhere for one reason and sure. you know burn plenty of resource that way the stuff you remember is the stuff that actually worked out oh yeah of course so. but, but it, it can be fun to burn resources and yeah. try new things though <laughs> yeah no actually the management team had a secret and quite interesting trip to Beijing one week um, when we were out you know pursuing a potential opportunity out there went absolutely nowhere it was sure. an interesting experience yeah. negotiating with honestly you never know where those kind of things might go you know yeah, a conversation yeah. that happened in the middle of some random thing that exactly. never became anything so uh, i guess as, as a close-up yeah. um what what are what are some of the new technologies or trends that, that that you're excited about that you're not closing yourself off to not not, not just for your business but yeah you know, no, for generally space and, i mean look, well, i mean i, I I'm not going to say anything here that is <laughs> unknown or, 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 or massively insightful. <laughs> I mean, I think, you know, I, I think, I think there's, there's some very clear stuff and there's some, some, we'll have to see where it goes kind of stuff, you know, applications of data to, you know, and, and AI and machine learning, mm -hmm. obviously, I mean, there's just 
no unlimited no limit to the potential there and i'm not you know i don't spend too much of my life thinking about worrying about the kind of you know cyborgs taking over the earth kind of ai but i just think about you know what can you do with these bigger data sets and bigger and bigger data sets what can you do how can ai get better and better on smaller data sets what how do you then apply it and i think we're just scratching the surface so much of that so i think there's a huge amount that's super exciting happening, mm-hmm. happening there you, you have a lot of powerful data as well yeah we do and you know we spend a lot of time thinking about you know What's what next? what what how can we really use that in mm-hmm. so you know, that's that's certainly you know one general field I think that we find find very interesting. I think or I find very interesting. You know I think a second is um, just fintech generally, and and I you know we're in the space so it's a little bit biased, but I think that there's still so much of the financial services world that hasn't been scratched by really you know, the use of technology. Uh, huge amount. Um, you know and and. and Every time I talk to a banker or an insurer and understand how they do business, I have a bit a clearer view of all the you know, how, yeah how much is still exactly. left un, untapped. So I think we're a long way from from that. And then and then mm-hmm. you know the, the other bit that I find very interesting is not so much technology, but I think sort of maybe an extension of the tech point is that I just can, I think there's still a lot of room to take traditionally offline models and bring them online. I mean we funded a great business one of my favorites called Hectare which is a cattle and grain trading site for farmers. Um, if you are a farmer, if you're a cattle farmer um, in England or anywhere, I assume, um, you know, a part of what you're doing day to day is managing your herd size. And for various reasons, you might want to sell some of your cow, you, you might want to buy some more in. And that's all a bricks and mortar yep. operation that doesn't look a heck of a lot different than it would have 100 years ago. Right. Um, and I think likewise for other agricultural products. These guys came up with a platform, originally it was called Sell My Livestock, um, that allowed that to come online. Um, and what's interesting about that is, it seems obvious in a way, but there's a, there's, there's a time element <clears throat> to that. You know, as the demographics of farmers shift as an older generation of farmers who actually were pretty tech savvy in terms of the tech they used actually in their sort of agricultural work mm-hmm. but who you know didn't own a computer and didn't oh, and connection internet. issues i think were a and the connection well. exactly you know, connection. rural environment totally a hundo that's There's a hundo. still in the u.s you know yeah I mean, rural, they got a satellite phone they're dealing with dial-up <laughs> <laughs> no, that's that's totally right. No, you're, you're, you're right. It's you know, there's the, the sort of generational mentality aspect, but there's the technology as well. And sure. a younger generation of farmers uh, and better, better connectivity by the year. Suddenly, you have the opportunity to bring this in. And I think, you know, I, I, I think there are still a lot of spaces like that. So I'm not, you know, the next e-commerce site that's going to just have a slightly new way of creating a basket to sell you shirts. Not that interesting. Right. But. All of the sectors out there that haven't had the kind of penetration that you know you've had in you know a few limited ones. Uh, I'm really interested in, in the opposite as well, in the taking what's working online oh, and bringing it offline. Well, that's true too, and 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 I'm that really gets to that. that gets to you know, and and that's that is exactly what will increasingly happen: hybrid models. And, yeah. You know, so there's huge, I'm a huge amount there, um, and then in terms of the who knows. Um, look, I, as blockchain's a great, you know, in the financial services space, blockchain's a, a great one, but no idea. Clearly some interesting applications, clearly more noise than I think I've ever seen. I mean, a lot of, of people say the birth of blockchain is kind of like the birth of the internet, and 
there was a lot of noise and nobody really knew what it would be for. Well, I've noticed you've been very careful not to yeah, we just, put that on the platform. We just haven't seen a use, I mean, we just, we just haven't seen the right use case yet. Like, you know, not to say it won't come, it just hasn't been there quite yet. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, that's a to-be-determined uh, kind of thing. Um, you know, I think, we do see, we, you know, some people say that VR has peaked. I, I think that oh, I don't think so. we see some interesting stuff there, but again, kind of to be determined what really lands. Sure. With it. Well, once, once we all have, you know, once the headsets are cheap. You know, yeah, yeah, no. We, we, we'd all, you know, use it. And once, you know, everyone, everyone or a large portion of people have the headsets, then the programs on them are going to be um, incredible oh, yeah. and will be a blast. We had a business raise some money through us that I really liked but didn't work out. That was, you know, it was VR shopping. I mean, it was the idea was that it was you could do online shopping, but with the yeah. experience as if you're walking through the store and looking at everything. Like that made a heck of a lot of sense to me. Probably before, probably before its time. Probably will come someday. Yeah. I hate to do this, but no, um, it was amazing. I got waiting for me, so I got to. I, I, I really appreciate. I hope, it. I hope it's been helpful. No, it was so that is the end of the interview with Jeff Lynn from Cedars. And I just wanted to send a, another big thank you to Jeff for being the first interview of this Meet the Founders uh, podcast. And uh, make sure to tune in next week. Next week, we'll be chatting with uh, Rafael Badziag. He is the author of The Billion Dollar Secret. And uh, The Billion Dollar Secret is a book on billionaire entrepreneurs around the world. Uh, Rafael actually interviewed 21 of uh, the most successful entrepreneurs in the world, uh, as defined by, you know, how much money they've made. <laughs> um, so these 21 self-made billionaires uh, took a long time to track down and to meet. There's actually never been a book written uh, where they try to interview 21 self-made billionaires. And the book's uh, incredible. And I, I hope you enjoy the uh, chat with Raphael next week. If you want to find out more details about uh, me and uh, what what we do, you can head to hiredevents.com where you can find some of the events that we have coming up. Or you can always reach out through the website if you want an event in your city. So uh, thank you again, and I hope to see you next week. Thanks so much.